I think that's the thing that frustrates me most about the January 6th experience, that there is this need to reach for consensus and to keep as many people in the vote as possible. But to do that, we decide we're not going to talk about this issue. That was staff counsel Candace Phoenix in the new podcast series from Our Body Politic, focused on the events of January 6th. This is Epicenter NYC. We connect our communities to news, information, and each other. I'm your host, Ambar Castillo. This month marks three years since the world's watched as rioters violently stormed the Capitol with the intent to overturn the 2020 presidential election. Since then, hundreds have been arrested and sentenced for their crimes on January 6th, and a congressional committee was formed to investigate how this could have happened. Last week, URL media partner, Our Body Politic, released a six-part podcast series exploring the inner workings of this committee. Today, we'll share highlights from the series, specifically focusing on the role of white supremacy in the insurrection. It is the summer of 2020. The nation is roiling. A few months earlier, George Floyd's last words, I can't breathe, were caught on camera. As white Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin crushed the life out of a man in front of a crowd of horrified onlookers, Floyd's name joined a growing list of black people killed by the police. In city after city, Americans voiced their anger and said enough, no matter that COVID was omnipresent. People took to the streets to march. Marcus Childress was no exception. I didn't just watch it, I participated in it. Uh, my wife and I were active participants in the Black Lives Matter protests. We threw a protest in Richmond myself where we led and organized it. Marcus, a lawyer and former military prosecutor who has often been the face and voice of the law, was also afraid of it in those days because of the color of his skin. Six months later, on January 6th, an overwhelmingly white crowd from all over the country descended on D.C. to voice their anger. They claimed that the presidential election was stolen from their candidate. That was a lie, one repeated by the defeated President Trump himself. Here's Brian Bonner. The complexion of the crowd likely affected how law enforcement and the intelligence community viewed the level of the threat. I think that that's something that a person of color, particularly a person of color that comes from an impoverished background, has a unique perspective on. Marcus again. And then to watch all the footage that I watched of January 6th and not see that same type of fear or even deference uh, was something that was hard to circle or or square for me. Um, I mean, I, I understand why. I'm not naive. But when we live those experiences just months apart, it's, uh, it's telling. Marcus's take on the reaction to the January 6th protesters and how people perceive it based on race is not his alone. On a really personal note, watching the attack on January 6th, the first thought was if these were people of color attacking the Capitol, there would be an incredibly different response. That is Samia Dayananda. She questions whether intelligence gathering failed because the brewing storm was white, not black. 
if people of color had posted on Parler these exact same words, mm-hmm. would they have been deemed credible? Right. You know, were there was there, would there have been this initial uh, reflex of this is First Amendment protected speech? Mm-hmm. Would it have been perceived differently by those in law enforcement who are tasked with assessing intelligence? And I don't think you can put that aside. For Robin, he drilled down on race in his studies at Harvard. He looked at what it means to be white. I wrote my senior thesis in college about how remarkably inclusive the white label can be. It, it, and then, of course, remarkably exclusive, right? It, it really, in this country, has meant non-black. It's always in stark contrast to black yes. people. Robin remembers how race came up behind closed doors during a deposition of former Capitol Police Chief Stephen Sund. We were getting on him for sort of shifting blame to others below him. Something had been put up by the Capitol Police that had warned that the target would be Congress. Its own intelligence division said that and put that out. And he read it, but still thought the intelligence didn't necessarily support different preparations. So we we were grilling him. We were really laying into him, I guess. And I remember Vice Chair Cheney, you know, jumped in and she was, I just have one question. Could you have foreseen that the American president would direct a mob of armed people who he knew were armed to the Capitol to storm it? And then the chief says, no. And she goes, OK, thank you. No further question. This back and forth over how much focus white supremacy should get was recurring. Here's Candace Phoenix, leader of the Purple Team. I think one of the things that really helped me dissect and define what I saw in the crowds Mm -hmm. on that day, on January 6th, because I remember talking to um, some other staffers and some members about how I did think white supremacy was the central theme of what happened. And some of the responses were, well, that's too broad a brush because, you know, QAnon, they're not white supremacists. They're just, you know, conspiracy theorists or this other group. They're not white supremacists. And having to do a lot of education for folks to understand, to to draw the parallels, to understand the history that that's rooted in when QAnon has very anti-Semitic tropes and memes and, and language that people may or may not consciously understand being rooted in that. But that's where it comes from. And trying to help people understand that what we saw on January 6th was, you know, different denominations of white supremacy. To understand January 6th, Candace firmly believes that the report needed to explain the legacy of structural racism. We saw it with the civil rights movement and then the rise of the militias in the 70s and the mass incarceration that was the new Jim Crow, Mm -hmm. the disenfranchised people. And we're seeing it now with the election of Barack Obama, with an era of sort of unprecedented liberal expansion and the mass disenfranchisement of people in this country. Candace and her team, the Purple Team, pushed hard for a different version of the report, one that would go far beyond President Trump's culpability for January 6th. Instead, the committee's majority won the day about what version of history was being told. I think that's the thing that frustrates me most about the January 6th experience, that there is this need to reach for consensus and to keep as many people in the vote as possible. But to do that, we decide we're not going to talk about this issue. We're not going to talk about Christian nationalism because we don't want it to appear as if we're anti-Christian. 
white Christian nationalists exist in a world that often denies the history of black and brown America. The fear that that gives me is that we're not operating under a common understanding of history. And we're not operating under a common understanding of facts or the present day. And when you're not operating under a common understanding of what the problem is, you're not going to come to the right solution. During the months-long investigation, behind closed doors, there were arguments over what the January 6th report should be and who the nation should hear from. You're not interviewing queer people. You're not interviewing people who are not Christian. And those are the folks who have the most to lose if our democracy fails. And so you end up in a circumstance where, for the most part, the people who have the mic were the people that helped us get there. I think after the Purple Team presented, where it was no one necessarily contesting that race is there, but just do we want to go down that route? That's Robin Piguero, who recalls the debate behind closed doors. He paraphrases Vice Chair Liz Cheney's point of view. I don't want to put words in Vice Chair Cheney's mouth, but I think at least the thought on that side of the argument was, you're trying to persuade people like me. And people like me who don't like me very much now because I've come out against my party or my party's president. How do we get them to see this for what it is? And do we need to have that argument right now in these pages? Our investigators told us that Vice Chair Cheney insisted that the January 6th report focus on President Trump, his lies about the 2020 presidential election, and his efforts to alter the outcome. She declined to speak to us. Here is Chair Benny Thompson's take on the two versions of what the January 6th report could be. Ken is absolutely right. You know, uh, as a black person from the South, I know a majority of that work was something that was absolutely necessary. Still, he is a politician. So the person I normally am, I set aside and became the chair to get the product produced. Robin ultimately understood Chairman Thompson's decision. It was, we need to keep the eye on the ball, which is the former president seeking to end American democracy. That's, that's what this has got to be about. We were trying to convert people to this notion that white supremacy really was at the center of what happened on January 6th. It explains why law enforcement did not take it seriously enough. It explains in some ways why uh, social media did not get their act together and why they didn't take it seriously enough. It explains why we had the rise of violent militias. There were a lot of folks that we talked to, even experts who would tell us, well, these militias aren't racist, they're anti-government. It was really important to us because defining the problem determines the solution. Yes. This very American history of progress, enfranchisement, backlash, disenfranchisement, and to help people see that we were in, we are in, an era of backlash and disenfranchisement. We saw it with the Civil War and enfranchisement, and then Reconstruction gave way to all of those Jim Crow laws yep. that disenfranchised people. It was really important to us to connect 
the big lie to the decades of discussion about voter suppression and voter intimidation before that and the ongoing effort in states to pass more and more restrictive laws to disenfranchise people. Because you don't get to a violent insurrection on January 6th if you can disenfranchise the people who wouldn't have voted for Trump. And that is the fear and the danger that we on the Purple Team were constantly trying to inject into the conversation to understand that the problem is bigger than Trump and will exist after Trump. As we look ahead to the 2024 elections, we want to make sure we're also looking back to the insurrection and what was left in its wake. We think it's not hyperbole to say that January 6th likely foreshadowed a lot more of what we'll see this year. The full series titled An American Story and the Our Body Politic podcast is created and hosted by award-winning journalist Farai Chedeya. You can check out the full episodes by clicking the link in our show notes or by visiting ourbodypolitic.com. To listen to the full conversation, click the link in our show notes or head over to localnewsmatterspodcast.com. And to learn more about URL Media and check out our fellow members, visit url-media.com. That's all for today. Thanks for listening and thanks for supporting us as we do our best to support our community. We couldn't do it without you. For more stories like this, make sure to subscribe to our newsletter at epicenter-nyc.com. Our intro music is All the Pretty Horses by Garavica. You can find more of their music on their website, linked to in our podcast description.